0: Chapter 6, Discerning the Role of Student Experiences in Learning, Kathy, Biology. As her seniors enter the environmental science room, Kathy sits calmly at the computer in the corner behind the demonstration table, entering grades and attendance into the school's database system. She's staring closely at the screen with her back to the door, but as the room fills with the sounds of adolescent conversations... She turns and waves hello to her students. There is a calm and unhurried atmosphere here, as if the class has somehow escaped the relentless modern pressures of standardized testing and school reform. Mr. Garner, the cooperating teacher, emerges from the prep room and chats with the incoming crowd. Though the room is windowless, it feels like a place to learn about nature, and it is not hard to imagine that we are really in a cabin classroom in the woods. Every available patch of wall is covered with taxidermied mammals, nature posters, bones of all kinds, and environmental bumper stickers with varying levels of political overtones. Students take their place at the four long rows of black lab tables in the front of the room, and Mr. Garner disappears into the back as the bell rings. Kathy makes a few final keystrokes and then walks to the door to greet the trickle of late-arriving students. The classroom banter is loud, and Kathy tries to get them settled. All right, guys, she says as she walks to the front desk. We've got to get going. We're going to the park today. The seniors take their time, well aware that graduation is less than a month away. Kathy calls students by name in an effort to quiet them down. Jeffrey, Ryan, Julie. Eventually, she has the attention of most of the class. Kathy points to the front whiteboard, which reads, Canoe slips due tomorrow. $25 trip. $10 t-shirt optional. I need your permission slips, she says but make sure you turn it in all at once. The sooner you get it in, the more likely it is we'll be able to guarantee you'll be with your friends. Students are evidently excited about this trip, and it takes Kathy a minute to settle them again. She lifts a magnetic compass from a box on the front table and holds it up to the class. Remember, today you're just taking down information. We'll make the map tomorrow in class, and your grade will depend on how close the endpoint on your map is to the actual endpoint. The students begin to rise from their seats, but Kathy isn't finished. You all know the way there. The only thing I'm asking is that we all cross at the lights and we cross together. Going outside is a familiar and welcome routine for the students, and the class walks down to the corner of 88th Street and crosses together. It is one of the first truly warm spring days of the year, and though Chambersburg High School is in a densely populated and busy area of the city, it feels like a nature hike. Students are relaxed and talkative, Some form shifting interest groups on the sidewalk, while others walk alone in quiet contemplation. As we pass a front yard with pink and white magnolia trees in bloom, one student plucks a flower and proceeds to pull off the petals absentmindedly. I hear the word prom float through the air more than once. Six blocks later, we regroup at the edge of the park near a large grassy triangle formed by the intersection of three walkways. Though Mr. Garner is present, this is clearly Kathy's class, and she takes charge. This is the triangle you're trying to get to, she says. After a quick head count, she leads the class through the park to a large pavilion alongside a landscaped pond. At the pavilion, Kathy outlines the main points of the orienteering activity, which is a part of the unit on land use developed by Mr. Garner. Look at the sample on your worksheet and find the triangle I just showed you. The students are attentive as she holds up the worksheet and points to their current location. You can go any way around the pond, she says, straining her voice to be heard by all. She then holds up a compass. Just remember to point your arrow, Fred, until red is in the shed. It takes me a moment to realize she is calling the compass arrow Fred and not talking to a particular student. I later learn she has adopted this memory aid for using the compass from her cooperating teacher. The students nod and start forming groups. Remember, she calls, I don't want to see just two people in a group doing all the work. If you have a third person, have them count off paces also. The groups begin their task, and a number of them work so quickly that they are soon far away from the pavilion. Kathy works patiently with two students who are having trouble reading the compass, but they are soon on their way. Students travel around each side of the lake, and Mr. Garner walks with some on the far side, while Kathy walks with a smaller group on the other. Three students decide to go over a hill instead of around it, and Kathy catches up to them to ask if this will affect their map. It wouldn't matter, the pace-counting student answers confidently. The up cancels the down. We'll see, says Kathy. The compass activity takes a total of 12 minutes to complete, and now that all of the students are accounted for, the return trek to school begins. Somehow it does not take as long as it did on the way there. One student says that she is sorry she wore heels. Once back in the classroom, Kathy collects the compasses and announces, You made good time, so you have a few extra minutes. High school seniors know a good bargain when they hear one, and most sit in their seats and talk for the next nine minutes. Kathy takes the opportunity to chase down a few students for missing assignments, hand out some last-minute permission slips, and chat with students in the front row. Her seniors carry their conversations out into the hall after the bell rings, but many wave goodbye to Kathy, who stands at the front desk waving back and watching them go. With a degree in natural resource management, Kathy spent her first four years after college working as an environmental educator in various nature centers across the United States. Her last job had been with an urban ecology center in the city of Briggstown, and the experience of designing, planning, and teaching lessons in partnership with city schools had left her feeling much like a science teacher already. The rewards of getting to know particular groups of students over the course of a school year had convinced her that she would enjoy teaching. The idea of finishing a certification program in a single year appealed to her, and she began her summer courses in the SAMTEP program at Brigstown with enthusiasm. Describing herself as an outdoors person, Kathy expected that being inside all day would be only one of her personal challenges in becoming a teacher. I need to work on being a force in the classroom, she told me early in her program. I'm naturally kind of quiet and shy, so it takes a lot of effort to be animated. She also knew that being a biology teacher required venturing beyond her expertise in environmental science. Learning about genetics well enough to teach the subject was a recurring concern of hers in our conversations over the year. Though eager to begin her 12-week practicum experience, Kathy approached the prospect of working closely with her three SAMTEP peers with apprehension. She told me that in her prior work experience, collaborating with colleagues had usually been challenging and unproductive. Her group's practicum assignment was a 6th grade science class at Moshi Middle School in which all of the students were African American. As the semester progressed, she expressed relief that her practicum group had similar orientations towards grading, planning, and classroom management. They used a rotating schedule for assigning lead teacher, and usually two of them would run the lesson while the other two observed the class. This didn't prevent the students from trying to play us off one another, she told me. During the second week of teaching, one of Kathy's group members brought in a large display digital timer into the classroom, an older model of the kind commonly seen in racing events. Whenever the sixth graders began to get off task or become inattentive, one of the group members would start the timer and let it run until the students quieted. The total time that accumulated on the display during the lessons became the length of time that students were then held after class. The timer was simple to operate and other SAMTEP practicum students in earlier periods also began to use it as a favored classroom management tool. Doing so fit with the conventional wisdom of the cohort, namely that student behavior was primarily a matter of external control by the teacher. Kathy resisted using the timer, though occasionally one of the other practicum students would start it for her if the class was disruptive. Though not completely unflappable, Kathy's approach to classroom management was noticeably different from that of her group. Whereas the other practicum students often became visibly angry and yelled at students, intolerably in my view, Kathy rarely did. Though she often felt the same frustrations as her colleagues did, she simply didn't view yelling as productive. I'm not a screamer, and I don't like it, she told me during her practicum semester. Eventually, Kathy's practicum group agreed to use clapping signals to get students' attention, a strategy she employed much more often than raising her voice. To Kathy and her practicum colleagues, order and quiet were the necessary initial conditions needed for learning. The group's agreed-upon strategy for achieving these behavioral goals was by using rewards and sanctions. Kathy was comfortable with her group's attempt at positive reinforcement, but as with the timer, she had her doubts about using punishment as a teaching tool. From her experience at the Nature Center, Kathy knew that children often act differently outdoors, and she regularly lobbied to bring the 6th graders outside for a lesson. She was consistently overruled by her group, however, who told her that the students, quote, couldn't handle it, unquote. Kathy's full-time student teaching placement was in an environmental science class at Chambersburg High School, located in the working-class suburb of Brigstown where she lived. In the mornings, she also spent time with a different teacher in a 10th-grade general biology classroom, planning and leading lessons on some days and observing on others. Kathy had greater responsibilities in the environmental science course and soon became the lead teacher for three classes each day. Mr. Garner had been an environmental science teacher for 19 years, the last 12 of them in Chambersburg. His classroom had been a reliable placement for many Brigstown University student teachers in the past, a valuable asset in the complicated process of identifying and selecting cooperating teachers for secondary science placements each year. Consistent with his philosophy of how people learn to teach, Mr. Garner intentionally spent most of the time at his desk in the back prep room while Kathy was teaching so that she could, quote, feel like she has her own class, unquote. He had high praise for Kathy right from the start and wrote on her mid-semester evaluation, working with Kathy is like working with a veteran teacher rather than a student teacher. One unfortunate consequence of Mr. Garner's confidence in Kathy was that she rarely received feedback from him on her teaching because he did not watch her lessons with any regularity. Kathy's seniors had a variety of motivations for being in the environmental science course. Though many students clearly had a strong interest in the subject, the class also had a well-earned positive reputation for its many field trips, a factor that both Kathy and Mr. Garner said kept enrollment high enough to justify five sections of the course every year. Although Kathy generally followed Mr. Garner's curriculum for the course, its elective nature meant that there was plenty of room for her to try out her own ideas. In my initial meeting with Mr. Garner, He mentioned that there had been a significant shift in the makeup of the school population since he had started teaching there. Things are changing here, he told me, as he described the district's recent demographic trends. Chambersburg High School had indeed been changing. According to state documents, 93% of the students a decade earlier had been identified as white, compared with 68% at the time Kathy was student teaching, as shown in Table 6.1 total enrollment, 1,459, American Indian, 2.4%, Asian, 2.6%, Black, 9.7%, Hispanic, 17.1%, White, 68.2%. Kathy recognized that her 10th grade biology classes represented this demographic profile far better than the elective 12th grade environmental science classes, which were nearly all white. At the time of this study, the state's open enrollment law had been in effect for 10 years, and its primary purpose was to allow students to enroll in schools across district boundaries. Mr. Garner, who was white, portrayed these changes as unwelcome. He expressed to me his belief that this law was the primary reason for the school's changing demographic profile, and on occasion made comments to me about the way the school used to be, and I worried a little bit about what effect Mr. Garner's attitudes might have on Kathy over time. The classroom management challenges of her middle school practicum were mostly absent from her student teaching, and her students were generally compliant with her classroom management efforts. Her teaching consisted primarily of a well-planned sequence of activities for her students, though she continued to struggle with maintaining an authentic connection between grades and student learning. Observing Kathy in her environmental science classes, I was often struck by how consistent her practice was with the vision of good teaching advocated by the instructors in the SAMTEP program at Briggstown. At the beginning of her program, Kathy expressed the belief that students ought to be treated as individuals, and that she did not consider race to be important. Although she was quite willing to discuss race and racism, even raising the possible issue of prejudice by white teachers toward students of color, She did not necessarily accord the concept of race much power or relevance. In our initial conversation, I presented her with a copy of the U.S. Census question on race and ethnicity and asked what she thought about when she saw such questions. She answered, I respond as white, but I usually think that's irrelevant to whatever form I'm filling out. She thought a bit before continuing. But working with some of the jobs that I have, we do keep track of some of the ethnicity of our students because it helps us get funding working with different minorities, but I usually find it irrelevant. Kathy was not alone among study participants in dismissing race and ethnicity category questions as irrelevant. Yet it was striking that she also recognized that funding for her work at the Nature Center depended on responses to them. The logical connection between funding and the participation of different minorities was vague for Kathy. She perceived this funding as an incentive, a reward for keeping minority student participation high and most of her Samtep peers, white and non-white alike, held similar beliefs. The actual rationale for the collection of these data is quite different from what Kathy had in mind. Testifying before Congress about the design of racial categorizations for the 2010 U.S. Census, Sharon M. Lee described the historical and current reasons for the collection of race and ethnicity information in government documents, noting, Racial statistics had historically functioned to maintain a social order and policies that excluded non-white groups from civil and political rights. The civil rights era dramatically changed this, and racial statistics are now used to document racial discrimination, leading to new laws and policies to redress systemic racial inequalities. U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, 2006, page 4. Rather than viewing the collection of race and ethnicity data as a way to ensure non-discrimination in the application of state and federal funds, Kathy saw this effort as an attempt to control institutional behavior through rewards and sanctions. As a result, Kathy's conception of race itself remained largely unmoored from issues of institutional and systemic racism. Mentioning it almost as an aside during our first conversation, Kathy said that she had maintained a mentoring relationship with an African-American sixth-grade girl named Tashana for the past year. Kathy often referred to Tashana as her little sister, because they had been paired up through the organization Big Brothers Big Sisters. Tashana came from a low-income urban background, and her comments on school and science offered contrasting perspective to the views Kathy brought from her own suburban white middle-class upbringing. Kathy said that her mentoring relationship had forced her to think about issues of race because Tashana would raise the topic in their conversations. I used to tiptoe around race, Kathy told me, but working with my little sister, it was in my face all the time, and I had to deal with it. Although Kathy agreed that major problems associated with racism were not solved, she tended to speak as if these were isolated problems experienced by individuals, and thought that contemporary discrimination was mostly unintentional. At the beginning of her program, Kathy told me that potential racism on the part of teachers might be influenced by the way the media portrays different ethnicities. She said, It may not be intentional, but I mean, everywhere you look, it's white culture, and it just makes me think about my little sister. And she says that her white teachers, she has a mix of white and non-white teachers, and those white teachers, she says, are racist, and they put all the non-white students in the back of the room. It gets me to thinking, it might not be intentional, but maybe there's just some deep-seated reasons for that, some underlying issues that need to be brought to teachers' attention. Kathy's conception at that time was, racism requires malice, but discrimination does not. Her orientation to racism as an individual, rather than than a systemic problem, is also evident in her responses to Tashana's reports of racist teachers in school. In recounting this conversation with Tashana, Kathy said, During Black History Month, she said they weren't talking about it at all in her class, and that really bothered her. So I tell her that she really needs to step up and say something, or go out of her way to learn something new about the topic she wants to learn in school. Take responsibility for her own learning. I try to reassure her that that can't be the case. Teachers are not out to get her or any other student. This suggestion demonstrates how Kathy is trying to be supportive of both Tashana and Tashana's teacher. To Kathy, mindlessness, not racism, is a more realistic explanation for the teacher's behavior, and her idea of a proper response is for Tashana to be both assertive and self-sufficient. The idea that structural racism is a system that permits unintentional discrimination to occur as a common practice was not yet part of Kathy's thinking. Untangling the social, developmental, and cultural influences on learning science was not a task that came easily to Kathy at the start of her program. She was disturbed by her little sister's negative attitude toward science, for which she blamed both Tashana's addiction to television as well as her coming from a broken home. She told me, I don't see her parents pushing her to achieve in science. Kathy viewed Tashana's knowledge of science from a deficit perspective, focusing mostly on what her little sister did not know and could not do. She also felt that Tashana was missing some basic experiences with nature, what journalist Richard Louvre, 2005, has termed nature deficit disorder. Kathy also recounted Tashana's complaint that her teachers haven't made the subject interesting for her, and she doesn't feel motivated to do any of the projects they assign her. This was an area in which Kathy worked hard with her little sister, trying to share the wonder of science that she herself felt. She sought to provide her with fundamental experiences in nature, taking Tishana for walks in the woods and going to the beach to look for shells. Kathy agreed that race, culture, and ethnicity could be relevant in the biology classroom, but said this related more to science content than to pedagogy. When I asked how she might respond to a student who wants to know if genes for skin color are related to other genes, she cited the linkage between people of different ethnicities and some genetic disorders. Admitting that she had not yet taken her required genetics course, she confessed to being unsure of the scientific details of this connection. The notion that one's pedagogy might be influenced by student diversity seemed unrealistic to Kathy. In talking about a lesson on the heritability of skin color, I asked her how the racial or ethnic makeup of her class might influence the lesson. She considered this at length and then said simply, it wouldn't. Over her year in the Sam Tepp teacher education program, the most evident change in Kathy's thinking about diversity in the classroom related to making science relevant and engaging to her students. She began to view identity and culture as resources upon which she could draw to engage students in science, and recognized that cultural differences could influence communication between teachers and students, and ultimately affect student learning. The idea that culture informs perceptions and shapes thinking had also become more intelligible to her, and this prodded her to reevaluate her past experiences with Tashana. Yet. Kathy rarely found it necessary to invoke the concept of race to explain discrimination. And without an understanding of the social dimensions of race to guide her thinking, Kathy found her students' talk and behavior about race puzzling. As will be shown, this left her uncertain as to how to respond to racist behavior in the classroom. Kathy's initial perceptions about the link between student engagement and perceived relevance occurred in her practicum at Moshi Middle School and later served to create a base on which to build her understanding of the pedagogical implications for student diversity. She described how one of her lessons was floundering until the student rescued it by making the topic relevant to the other 6th graders. She reported, It was about how a disease had spread through a community way back in England, and the kids did not relate at all. And I noticed there were no ties in the textbook to modern day or where the kids were coming from. It was about vaccinations, and I don't know if it was smallpox, but the kids had no idea what was going on or couldn't even really relate to that time period. I think one kid, he was a repeat student, so he had seen this the year before, he kind of spoke up and linked it to getting vaccinations today and having to go to the doctor and get shots. Then I think the kids started to really catch on to what we were talking about. Over the fall semester, Kathy showed an increasing awareness of identity and culture as aspects of her students' lives. She continued to think about these connections largely in terms of how culture could be made part of the content, and referred to how a required course on Native American history, culture, and tribal sovereignty helped her think about these curricular connections. She said, Overall, I walked away thinking there's a lot of things, especially in the Brigstown area, that you could draw upon that might relate to Native American students, or any students, really, especially when you're thinking about science and natural resources. There are a lot of things in the community that you could link your activities to. A section from Kathy's final paper for her Change Strategies in Urban Education course demonstrated the extent to which Kathy had enriched her thinking about the pedagogical implications of student diversity over the year in the program. She wrote, While the majority of urban teachers are white and middle class, the majority of urban students are non-white students in poverty. Many teachers live outside of these urban centers, where it is generally considered taboo to discuss race and skin color. She then described how teachers should acknowledge stereotypes but embrace cultural differences and search for students' strengths. Her paper concluded with specific implications for using these ideas for teaching. She wrote, Teachers may then begin to understand the ways in which urban students learn and how culture can shape student perceptions. Teachers must also make a conscious effort to avoid lowering their standards and expectations of multicultural students. Instead, teachers should provide additional resources and build upon prior knowledge and experiences that students bring to the classroom. What comes through in this piece of writing is a sense of the importance of student identity and culture in student learning. Whereas earlier her ideas were limited to incorporating diversity content into biology lessons, in this work, written during f- full-time student teaching, she referred to building on the prior knowledge and experiences of urban students and embracing strengths and cultural differences. Equally apparent, both here and in other data, is the fact that she has little notion of how to apply this idea to her teaching. In particular, understanding, quote, how culture can shape student perceptions, unquote, is singularly difficult for her, because Kathy's own understanding is that culture is related to the outward expressions of beliefs, practices, and traditions, and is not something that affects perceptions. Though she spoke earlier of culture in the paper, she raises the notion that the discussion of race and skin color is taboo in the suburbs, where she also notes that many teachers of urban students live. Although she uses the language of culture, for example taboo she does not refer to the culture itself this and her other use of language such as the phrase multicultural students indicates a view of white culture as the norm to which other cultures refer defined by the existence of the other apple 1993 chubbuck 2004 kathy portrayed culture as a resource for participation and engagement but did not yet view it as a lens through which lived experience was interpreted. This was evident in one of her practicum lessons on the phases of the moon, in which she used a textbook session on moon legends from different cultures. Kathy's understanding of the author's rationale for including different cultures' explanations for the phases of the moon was to keep the interest level of the students high as they distinguished between testable and untestable hypotheses. Ultimately, it was in teaching the topic of evolution in biology class the following semester that Kathy was able to comprehend more clearly how culture shapes perception and influences learning. She reported I noticed, especially when we started talking about evolution, there were a lot of strong opinions that students brought with them, and a lot of them were based on their religion or their culture. You know, when you've got students just blurting out that they don't believe you and this is a bunch of baloney, it's hard to ignore. So, I've started to think, I can't just assume that everybody's the same. They all come bringing their identity and their beliefs with them. The idea that learning can be strongly influenced by beliefs made more sense to Kathy when she was able to connect it to the more familiar example of resistance to learning evolution. By the end of student teaching, this realization had led Kathy to recognize the necessity of learning more about her students in order to be an effective teacher. Having just interviewed for a middle school science position in Briggstown, she considered the implications. It makes me realize, she said, that I need to look beyond just the content I'm teaching and I need to make it more relevant. I need to learn about the students, different minority groups, different ethnicities, and kind of predict what students are going to be bringing to the table, what their beliefs are going to be. And I'm looking at a school now where the population is 100% African American, and it's got me thinking. How am I going to meet the needs of these students, knowing that I grew up a whole lot differently than some of these urban kids? Earlier, Kathy's conception of culture had been represented by elements external to the individual, such as stories, behaviors, and practices. Now, by attending to student beliefs, and the effects of those beliefs on learning, she has accorded her conception of culture some internal power as well. However, precisely how to take student identities and cultures into account when planning and implementing lessons remained a challenge for her. This issue of knowing what to do but not knowing how to do it, sometimes called the problem of enactment, Hammerness et al., 2005, is of great concern to teachers and teacher educators alike. Insight into this problem of enactment can be gleaned from Kathy's lesson plans because of the conspicuous nature of the disconnections between changes in her thinking, And her actual practice in the classroom. I examined 41 lesson plans prepared by Kathy for her environmental science class for spring student teaching. These lessons covered a wide range of topics including sustainable forestry, mining, wilderness survival, wildlife ecology, and animal tracking and trapping. Despite the relationship of many of these topics to the strong Native American cultures in the area, and Kathy's stated intention to draw upon such resources during our conversations prior to student teaching, there was no evidence that she used any of this material in her lessons. A similar examination of the 16 lessons Kathy prepared for her 10th grade biology class, which mostly covered topics of molecular genetics and inheritance, revealed a similar absence of multicultural content. The idea that multicultural content was primarily for, quote, multicultural students, unquote, held firm for Kathy throughout her education as a teacher. After reading the above section in a draft of this chapter, Kathy herself offered a three-part explanation for not including culturally relevant material in her lessons. First of all, she said, it didn't occur to me. I didn't know to include that material. I took what I had in front of me, and in the stuff Mr. Garner gave me, it wasn't there. It seemed that in her biology and her environmental classes, the seemingly fixed nature of the curriculum made it difficult for her to incorporate multicultural content, even given her apparent freedom to modify her cooperating teacher's activities. The second reason was what she called the time issue. Kathy found that modifying her cooperating teacher's lesson plans often required a significant investment of time, something that she had less of while taking her SAMTEP courses three nights each week. Finally, she noted that she had not included content from the Native American studies class because she was not teaching Native American students. I don't know if I would have even considered it relevant to that group of Chambersburg students, she said. Kathy saw the integration of multicultural content into her lessons as appropriate primarily for students who might relate culturally to that content, even though it could have been of considerable value for all of Kathy's environmental students. Once Kathy started viewing culture as consisting of more than an external expression of one's upbringing, she was able to re-examine some of her past difficulties with her little sister. During practicum, Kathy had remarked on the odd similarities between Tishana and the Moshi Middle School students in a number of respects. She said, They're impulsive, they have a hard time keeping track of things, and their stories never agree. She also noted how their stories seemed to be told in the same roundabout manner. At the time, Kathy began to situate such communication issues firmly within a developmental framework, seeing them as generalized characteristics of sixth graders. By the completion of student teaching, Kathy had come to label some communication issues as having cultural dimensions and was better able to disentangle them from issues concerning child development. Although she had previously considered Tashana's habits of talking in circles and interrupting to be personal quirks, Learning that storytelling, circular patterns of talking, and interactive dialogue could be cultural norms made her reassess these communication issues. She noted that this realization had made an immediate impact on the way she viewed her classes. In biology, some of the students would interrupt while I was talking, but it'd be related to what I was saying. It wasn't because they were being disruptive, it was because they were trying to participate. Kathy suggested that these types of communication issues might be responsible for the differential academic achievement of white and non-white students, an idea she clearly had not held at the start of her program. Though there was considerable activity in Kathy's thinking around issues of culture, she continued to feel that the concept of race had little explanatory power. If anything, her idea that invoking race for explanations carries negative consequences actually became stronger over her year of learning to teach. She saw mentioning race, even in the census identity question, as having the potential to reinforce negative self-images. Although she thought that discussing the genetic basis for skin color was an appropriate activity for a biology class, Kathy expressed a preference for choosing different genetic traits, such as cleft chins or attached earlobes, to explore heredity. To her, using these examples left less room for students to make unwelcome comments about skin color. She noted, Students may use skin color as a put-down, almost, as a way of making a student feel bad. So I may hesitate, just because of some of the comments I've heard. So maybe I might think that the students aren't mature enough to take it as data. They might use it as a personal attack. Kathy's strategy for creating a safe classroom environment for her students of color entailed keeping a lid on such unpleasantness, even if it meant bypassing certain content. During the year of this study, Kathy rarely used race labels, either in speaking with me or in her lesson materials. In her only student teaching lesson that referred to skin color, Kathy prepared an activity for her students that included the following set of instructions. Draw a human pedigree that shows a man and a woman with three kids. The oldest child is a girl, The middle child is a boy, and the youngest child is a girl. The youngest child is an albino. She marries a man with normal skin color, and they have a baby girl who is an albino like her mother. What are the genotypes in this human pedigree? Human skin in this problem has been reduced to, quote, normal skin color, unquote. Although Kathy is certainly limiting the language of this problem to make the simple Mendelian model of genetics understandable to her students, it is consistent with the conception that race has limited relevance in the classroom and need not be invoked for explanations. As will be shown next, such a conception made it difficult for Kathy when invoking race eventually became necessary for explaining classroom events. Kathy clearly brought a sense of moral obligation to her work. Her lessons on the environment often connected with issues of fairness in terms both local and global. She was unfailingly kind and even keeled in her classroom demeanor and appeared to form positive relationships with her students. Her good rapport was often extended to those who might be socially isolated or fall through educational cracks. She had made a sustained commitment to working with Tashana and planned to make a career out of teaching students in urban public schools. In short, Kathy appeared to possess all of the necessary professional dispositions for teaching in diverse classrooms. Golnick, 2008, Viegas, 2007. Yet, as much as Kathy had learned during her teacher education program and from her little sister, the lived experiences of race remained a mystery to her. By the end of her program, she still saw racism as something individual and malicious. Though the idea of systemic or institutional racism may have been intelligible to her in an academic sense, it did not seem likely to her that such things could have the same pernicious effects as individual acts of discrimination. The result was that she found it incredibly difficult to accept what Tashana and her students told her about their experiences with racism. This is clear in the earlier example when she reassured Tashana that her teachers were not out to get her. She also found it difficult to believe her Moshi Middle School 6th graders when they said that some of their teachers were racists. For Kathy, even though the notion that race is irrelevant in the classroom became less plausible, it remained strongly held because she had nothing else to take its place in her conceptual ecology. That is, she was not able to think of a way in which race could be relevant. One possible answer comes from Tatum, 2003, who notes, Black youth think of themselves in terms of race because that is how the rest of the world thinks of them. Page 53. The fact that such an idea was not yet accessible to Kathy and her thinking became clear to me during the following incident in her classroom. In Kathy's second month of student teaching, Paul, a white student in her afternoon environmental science class, drew a racial caricature of an African-American classmate on the electronic whiteboard. He had been acting as the class data recorder during an activity on population growth during the incident. Of the 26 seniors in the class, Devon was only one of three African-American students. Look, Paul had shouted in the midst of the activity, it's Devon!" Most students were involved in rolling handfuls of dice and did not notice the drawing. Neither did Kathy, who had been reprimanding a group of students in the back of the room for being off-task one student saw it however and shouted draw the lips bigger the next round came quickly and paul and his helper deleted the caricature as they returned to their data recording roles as each group called out their tally of population changes at the end of the period while kathy was organizing and putting away materials paul once again drew a caricature with a wide nose and big lips this time with the whole class watching devin someone drew you shouted one student Another student called out, I don't think you drew the lips big enough. Paul continued to revise his drawing as his classmates laughed until the bell rang moments later. Devin left the class with a clear look of shock on his face. Kathy and I had watched this scene, which lasted all of about 30 seconds from opposite sides of the room. Later that evening, in an email to me, she wrote, I immediately erased it from the board, But as students were rushing out of the room i didn't know what to do i was appalled but given i wasn't feeling well and my head was a little fuzzy i didn't think to get devin's reaction i had hoped he hadn't seen it i returned to observe the same period the next day but no further mention was made of the incident by anyone i encouraged kathy to discuss what had happened with both devin and her cooperating teacher even if the result was only to acknowledge its occurrence During our final conversation, we discussed this incident at length. To my surprise, the majority of her remarks concerned Devin's culpability, even though he was the one being portrayed in the racial caricature. She said, I've seen Devin instigate more stuff than I've seen them, so I almost wonder if they followed his lead. I almost think that they would be much more sensitive of that and not even draw pictures like that or make comments like that if it weren't for him and the way he jokes about himself. Kathy reported numerous other incidents of Devin, quote, poking fun of himself, unquote, in front of his classmates, some of which she found offensive. Although Kathy came to understand many of the general behaviors of her high school seniors, particularly those concerning their social needs and desire for independence, she, she simply could not understand Devin's continued invocation of race in situations where it seemed unwarranted to her. She gave another example. We were going outside, and there was a little window well with a grate over it. And Devon said, that's where they keep all the little black children, or something like that. You know, just little random comments. He's just pointing. Yep, that's where they keep them. And I looked at him, and he just shrugged his shoulders. And you know, it was just some weird little joke, some just some running joke for him. Kathy's perplexed interpretation of this incident and her subsequent depiction of Devin Suggested that she had yet to come to terms with the impact that racialized experiences have on the minds of her students. Kathy's hesitance to intervene in the caricature situation was rooted in the fact that she had not quite defined the problem. To her, the problem could have been one of instigation, in which Devin would take the blame, or classroom management, in which Paul would bear more responsibility. The problem might also simply be one of violating, quote, the taboo to discuss race and skin color, unquote, as she had written earlier. The common denominator for all these explanations is that the harmony in the class has been disrupted in some way, making things uncomfortable. Stating, I hoped he hadn't seen it, was a further indicator of a desire to maintain good classroom relations rather than to view this incident as a teachable moment for Paul and the class. Not yet comprehensible to Kathy was the possibility that this problem may be one of a classroom climate that supported and perpetuated racism. My own admittedly anecdotal impression, shaped by observations of teacher-student interactions in the public spaces of the school, was that the Chambersburg school environment itself seemed generally hostile to students of color, which may have contributed to this particular classroom's climate. When I suggested to Kathy that Devon's actions might have been a way to cope with such an environment, she pointed to his defensiveness whenever she questioned him. There were times when he would just put on his headphones and just tell me to leave him alone. Kathy never mentioned the other students in the room, white or black, who witnessed or participated in the incident, and it is evident in this silence that this remains an individual rather than a collective issue for her. Though she might wish for a classroom environment free from racial conflict, she had not yet developed the skills to combat racism in the classroom. It is also likely that the possibility of addressing this issue beyond an individual basis would have created unwanted conflict with Mr. Garner. Indeed, Kathy's discussion with him about the incident was less than supportive. She reported his response to be, Oh, it's not a big deal. These kids just goof around. The idea that race is not significant in the classroom would seem credible to Kathy if she accepted her cooperating teacher's explanation of the incident. But she did not. Kathy continued, It bothered me because of some of the stuff this student would say. This African-American student, I found offensive. But here he's talking about himself and poking fun at himself. I have no idea what's going on with him. For the time being, the conception that race is significant in the classroom had become more plausible but it did not yet have the power to help her understand Devin enough to empathize with his experiences. Over the course of the year, Kathy's perspective on the role of student ideas changed significantly. Before beginning the program, she strongly agreed that clear explanations by teachers were able to correct student misconceptions. Though she was aware that students held certain misconceptions about particular science topics, she did not see how knowing about these would help her teach students any better. At the end of student teaching, Kathy described her initial ideas about student misconceptions this way, I thought that if you tell students something and they disagree, then they'll take your word for it and suddenly understand. By the end of student teaching, Kathy had expanded her understanding of student ideas in three particular ways. First, she was able to give examples of particular misconceptions students might possess about different topics without much difficulty. Second, she had come to see how the use of student ideas related to their motivation for learning. Third, she began to speak of student ideas as the raw material of learning, rather than as interchangeable bits of information, as she wrote in this reflection. When the teacher uses a student's idea to generate discussion, it takes into account what students are thinking. It's not just throwing information at the students, but taking their ideas, their preconceptions, and getting them to talk about it, and maybe, instead of just telling them the answer, getting them to think about it and come to their own conclusions. Kathy had revised her earlier belief that clear explanations were enough to correct student misconceptions. The tenaciousness with which learners hold on to their misconceptions had become apparent to her, both in her SAMTEP courses and in her fieldwork. She now felt that students learned best when they figured things out for themselves, instead of being told or shown. From the start, Kathy had expressed a desire to involve her students in learning that was active and hands-on, and rely less on the use of lectures as a teaching strategy. Following her practicum, Kathy reiterated her commitment to providing her students with the opportunity for hands-on learning. When I asked her to define what she meant by this, she said, To me, I guess it means that the students are doing something. It's them actively asking questions or making observations or really problem-solving, versus just being lectured to or talked to. At the midpoint of her program, Kathy simply desired to have an active classroom. Yet by the end of her student teaching, it seemed unrealistic to her that hands-on or active learning alone would foster student learning, preferable as it was to lecturing. A project to create solar cookers in the environmental science class, one of her cooperating teacher's signature lessons, did much to change her thinking about the other elements that fostered science learning, particularly the idea of ownership over the curriculum. In describing the project, she told me, They don't have too many opportunities to really claim ownership for a project. We usually do these shorter labs, but with this four-and-a-half-day lab, it was really there, and you could sense the pride in these weird contraptions they had made. It made me start to think that maybe I should try to incorporate a little bit more of that. If I really want them to claim a project as their own, it needs to be a problem that they're in charge of solving. I'm not there giving them steps and telling them what to do in the process. In a very short space of time, Kathy had come to see much value in the idea that student ownership of work supports meaningful learning. This led her to reconsider the meaning of the grades she assigned for such a project, a dilemma she was just beginning to confront. This new focus on the internal motivation of students to learn science, or at the very least to participate in the activities of the class, was significant. One other aspect of Kathy's thinking that changed during this time was that she became less certain about indicators of student motivation. As mentioned, the environmental science class took numerous field trips throughout the semester. The cost of these trips was borne entirely by students, and any students who were unable to pay for the trip were not permitted to go. At the beginning of the semester, Kathy considered those who went on the trips to be the, quote, motivated ones, unquote. Although she felt that her seniors were nearly adults and responsible for their own learning, she reconsidered the economic dimensions of the field trips. When I asked her how her thinking had changed over the semester, she replied, It has changed a bit, because at the beginning of the semester I was given the impression by my cooperating teacher that those who went on the trips were the motivated kids, and the kids who didn't were the slackers, and they didn't bother to get their permission slip in. But toward the end, after I got to know the students, and they would come to me and tell me their sad story, whether it be their car or whatever, I started to see that maybe it wasn't just because they weren't on top of things, And maybe it wasn't just not being motivated to get the permission slip signed. Maybe it was financial. The problem is that field trips are not really open to all students, because not every student can afford them. In this statement, it is clear that Kathy was reconsidering not just the economics of field trips, but the validity of her indicators of student motivation as well. Kathy and I met in a small suburban coffee shop on a crisp Sunday afternoon in November, two months into her new job as a 7th grade teacher in the Briggstown School District. She had been hired on the day before classes began in September and was teaching in what she termed a very diverse middle school. Admitting that it was strange to read about herself, she expressed her satisfaction that this write-up of her case captured things pretty well. She added, it showed where I was at the start and at the end how I was still unsure of some things. Kathy described how reading the case brought back some issues that she hadn't thought about recently, particularly making content more relevant to students' lives. I've just been caught up in teaching, and I don't really feel like I have any time to step back and think about this stuff, she reported, adding that the lack of resources at her school make it, quote, hard to put the teacher education tools into play, unquote. She did not feel this inability to use what she had learned in SAMTEP represented a shortcoming of her teacher preparation, however, noting, My main focus some days is not on teaching. It's discipline. Sometimes I feel like a warden. She reported being surprised by other teachers' attitudes. I got to the school, she said, and almost immediately I ran into the attitude that inner-city kids are hopeless. I wasn't prepared for that reaction. In so many ways, Kathy remains primed for tremendous growth as an educator, and she possessed at the start many of the personal and professional qualities needed by master science teachers for diverse classrooms. What this case shows is that she responded and grew along those dimensions in which she had an opportunity to learn, for example, fostering student ownership over learning, and that her progress was stalled in areas that were not a focus of her program, for example, addressing issues of discrimination, It may be that Kathy's considerable motivation to make connections with her students will help her find allies to resist the negative attitudes she currently encounters. Though the actively moral dimension of Kathy's social consciousness remained untapped by her teacher preparation program, my hope is that it may yet give her the strength to push back against those who would try to socialize her otherwise.